We'll be in uh, Revelation chapter 13 this morning. Uh, All things new, hope at the revelation of King Jesus. Uh, Well, um, certainly uh, Stephanie hit on a few of the the things uh, that I was going to talk about early this morning. Uh, Just that we have seen an increasing polarization in our culture. Certainly, I'm sure that you have experienced this, not just in our culture at large, but also within friendships or family. You've probably experienced this, whether it's in disagreements about racial justice and things of that nature, or matters of faith, COVID, politics, any of these things. And and you've seen people that you thought maybe were in one place move in a different direction, and maybe you've seen friends move in opposite directions or even seen folks deconstruct their faith. Now, there are many reasons for this polarization and all these things, and much has been written about it, but I think something that does contribute to it is a feeling that is basic to humanity. It's one of the more universal experiences we have, and that's of being homesick. You know the feeling I'm talking about, right? Being homesick? And not just this feeling of, well, I'm traveling and so I want to come back home, but a deeper sense of homesickness. That the place that you are no longer feels like home. Maybe you've experienced physical homelessness, which certainly would display that for you in ways that I can't imagine. But maybe there's other ways in which you've felt this. You've You felt like you were at home, but no longer. Whether it's in a group of friends or in a church or in a political party or movement or family or even in your own body, you no longer feel at home. Just this sense in which you feel like things aren't the way they're supposed to be. They're not the way that it's supposed to be. But you know somehow there's a home somewhere for you, and so you feel like you're longing for it. Uh, Dave Radford from the band The Gray Havens wrote a song called Endless Summer. He says in that song, have you ever missed somewhere that you've never been before? Like there's a memory there, except you don't remember anymore. That's it, right? That's the feeling of homesickness. That's the feeling we all know. And sometimes when we have that feeling, we're longing for a home, and so polarization often offers us a home. It offers us a tribe. It offers us a people that we can cling to. And maybe I may even compromise things in order to feel at home. I, I may want to rid myself of this homesickness that I feel, and so I might compromise in order to feel at home. It's why people join cults. It's why people stay in abusive relationships. It's why people de- deconstruct their faith and a host of other things. And yet, even when you get there and think that you've found a home, this feeling of homesickness persists. And it's this sense of homesickness that helps us to make sense of some of what John is warning us about in the book of Revelation. He's warning us, kind of throughout this book, as we have seen, he's been warning us about the threat of compromising with the empire and false teaching. Right, These two threats that we saw in the letters early on and see kind of pervasive throughout, we're going to see very clearly and vividly, probably its most vivid description of those two things here this morning in the threat of empire and the threat of false teaching. 
And it's this sense of homesickness that gives us this threat of compromising in one of these directions. And so we're going to look at this this morning in probably one of the most debated passages of Revelation. So no worries, right? Easy stuff, easy stuff. Uh, as I've said every, every week here, like, if you're new here, this is your first time here, I'm really sorry. We're, like, right in the middle of a weird book. Like, it just is what it is. And so hopefully we will explain it. My children this week told me that they, uh, as, as I've been doing this, they're like, we don't understand anything that that book is saying. But we kind of get what you're saying. So I was like, okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. All right, so Revelation, starting at 12, 18. Then the dragon took his stand on the shore beside the, be- beside the sea. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns, with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. What does that even look like? And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. Okay, so the beast. What is this beast? Well, I'm going to give you a, kind of an overview of the passage, and then we'll kind of walk through some specific things. But in this passage, we're going to see what commentators call an unholy or a satanic trinity. In opposition to God, who is triune, we see the dragon, and we see this beast come up from the sea, and when we see a beast come up from the land, and they function as a false god, a false trinity, an unholy trinity. This is obviously, as we've said kind of throughout, figurative language. We don't believe that a beast is going to rise out of the sea that looks like that. I don't even know what that would look like. But I don't think a beast like that is going to rise out of the sea at the end of time. And here's why. Remember, we've said throughout this that John alludes to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. And he alludes to the book of Daniel more than anything else. And clearly here, he is alluding to the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, Daniel sees a vision of four beasts rising up out of the sea. The first beast is a lion. The second beast is a bear. The third beast is a leopard. And the fourth beast is a ten-horned, terrifying beast. It doesn't really describe. Just ten horns, and he's more terrifying than the rest. Do you see any relationship here, right? What John has done is taken all four of these beasts and combined it into one beast. So, what were the beasts in the book of Daniel? Well, Daniel tells us. He has the vision explained to him. And there's these four successive evil kingdoms that are going to rise up. And so, what John is saying is, this combination of all of these things together in this beast is very clearly this one evil kingdom. This one evil kingdom, or as John is going to call her later, Babylon. Babylon is in mind, the enemy of God's people. Now, Babylon doesn't exist when John's writing this, so John clearly is thinking about Rome. The Roman Empire spanned the globe, the known globe at the time, and this John is clearly thinking about Rome. But because of the way it references Daniel 
and the way it functions and kind of how we've been talking about the book of Revelation, this is not simply only Rome, but really represents uh, uh, the, the, the framework that we've been talking about throughout this book, that this represents evil empire. That this represents any evil empire opposed to God. So what is empire, right? We've been talking about it kind of throughout. Simply put, it's the kingdoms of this world. Any kingdom in this world, any political state, any nation, any kingdom in this world that Jesus is not physically on the throne of is Babylon. That's what the book of Revelation is showing us in this beast. Like any place in which the church lives is Babylon. We live, friends, in Babylon. We live in Babylon. We talked about this last week, right? We lived in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness. As the church, we live in Babylon. In seeking to define this, we can look at ways in which Revelation critiques Babylon. Uh, Michael Gorman, in his reading Revelation Responsibly book, I've quoted a couple of times, he says, uh, Revelation as, sees Revelation as a critique of secular power wherever and however it expresses itself oppressively and especially as a critique of such power that is deemed sacred and granted devotion and allegiance. Uh, he quotes from another author, J. Nelson Craybill, in his book on Revelation. says, No Western nation has outright ruler worship today. We're going to talk about this in a moment, but like the way in which this beast functions and the way in which Rome functioned at the time for the church, there was outright demand for worship of the leaders, right? You had to worship Caesar. And if you worshiped Caesar, you were okay. And if not, you faced persecution and suffering. So there is no Western nation that has outright worship, uh, ruler worship today. We do have political, military, and economic powers to which millions give unquestioned allegiance. The world that John inhabited, the Roman Empire, and the symbolic universe his vision created have uncanny parallels to our circumstances today. The reality is we live in a place in which our allegiance is constantly required. It is constantly drawn out. It is wanted. Our allegiance to Babylon. Here's why we need to talk about this, right? Because last week we said, if the church is going to survive in the wilderness, first you have to know that you're in the wilderness. And if the church is going to remain faithful in Babylon, you've got to know you're in Babylon and not in Jerusalem, right? That's what John, like if we were to summarize Revelation, we could say, man, there's a lot of really creepy things. So know that you're you live in Babylon and you're headed to Jerusalem. Don't make your home in Babylon. Make your home in Jerusalem. That's kind of the whole point of the book. And we're going to tell you a lot of really scary things about Babylon so that you know Babylon is not your home. We need to know this because the kingdoms of this world, the secular power structures and states, the empires that we exist in are Babylon. And Babylon, or the beast... As we're going to see in this text, this beast, or the empire, does its best to strike back, so to speak. Right? In the midst of us walking in this place and seeing Jesus as on the throne, this text says the empire's going to strike back. 
against the church. Now, the empire strikes back in the sense that it's already been struck, right? This beast has a fatal wound on his head. Do you remember what Genesis says of what Jesus will do? He will crush the serpent's head and his heel will be bitten. This beast has had his head crushed. And yet, it looks as though he's still alive, right? He's been healed in some way, right? Does that sound like anyone else that Revelation has been talking about, right? Remember, this is an unholy trinity. Satan representing the Father, the beast from the sea representing the Son, and the beast from the land representing the Spirit. Remember that Christ, the Lamb, who looked as though he had been slain, but is alive, he stands. Yes, he actually died, and yet he actually rose from the dead and is no longer dead. Right? For Jesus, the view as though he had been slain does not say anything about whether he was actually slain. He was actually slain, but the reality is that his life conquered death. This is actually sort of the reverse. The beast looks alive, but it had a fatal wound. It's really dead. You see, the beast, it looks like it's alive and well. For John's day, Rome looks like it's thriving. But what John is declaring for us is, no, I actually saw the head is crushed. It's dead. It's really dead. We live in this in-between time, kind of like the, the, the time between D-Day, in which World War II was won, and V-Day, right, where, where the victory was actually completed. In between that time, victory was certain. But they still had to fight it out. That's where we live today as the church. The beast is already dead. And now we have to live in the midst of that. All right. Continuing on. They worship the dragon for giving the beast such power. And they also worship the beast. Who is as great as the beast, they exclaim. Who is able to fight against him? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. All right, remember, anytime you see a number in Revelation, you're like, wait, okay, what does that mean? Remember, 42 months, right? Same as 1,260 days, same as a time, times, and half a time, right? All of these are meant to communicate this is the fullness of the church age, right? Between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Right? And we've seen these in a couple of different spots. And so when you see that 42 months, right, it's helpful to find out where else does Revelation say that. And so what is John really trying to say in there? And he's really trying to say that throughout the entire church age, this beast is going to ravage the church. That's exactly what we've seen throughout church history, right? Evil kingdoms of the world fighting against the church. Seeking to destroy the church. It's what we see today in many places throughout the globe in which our brothers and sisters face death for believing in Jesus. The empire strikes back in persecution against the church. He spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Remember, his tabernacle, I believe, is the Greek word here for dwelling, which is exactly what we saw when we saw the temple, right? That the temple in a couple chapters previous was the people of God. So he's fighting and blaspheming against the people of God, the church. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. 
And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. Who actually has authority over those? Christ. But again, this unholy trinity has authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. The empire strikes back in persecution against the church and is given authority to afflict all the nations. Now, I don't think that that necessarily means one global evil kingdom or world power. The point is that any political power or world power is ultimately Babylon. There's no such thing as a Christian political nation. The church, the kingdom of God, is distinctive from the kingdom of the world. This is why we talked uh, a little bit ago about the conversion of Constantine, right? And the conversion of Constantine in the Roman Empire creates this tension and this combination of Christianity and power that we continue to struggle with today. This tension of the church as, is the church a place of power or is the church a place of suffering? And we continue to wrestle through these things because this tension comes because kingdoms of power and the kingdom of God are different. They have different aims, they have different means, and they worship a different master. And the point for the church is to say, remember that Babylon is Babylon and not the church. Don't confuse what is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Don't be tempted to side with the empire and pledge your ultimate allegiance to it. Now, at times throughout church history and in various places today, that compromise with the empire has been easier to identify and harder to do, right? Harder to live under. It's easier to identify when in Rome you compromised and made a sacrifice to Caesar. That was easy to identify. They were saying, worship Caesar as God, and you did that. That's a compromise of ultimate allegiance, that's easy to see, but really hard to do, right? Hard to live under because if you don't do that, you're going to die. Those types of situations still exist today. Maybe not in this exact same way, but throughout the globe, they still exist. But there are other times in church history and maybe where we live here today where it's harder to identify compromise with the empire and much easier to live under, right? We don't face the threat every day of, Give your allegiance to Jesus or give your allegiance to money, and if you don't, I'll kill you. That, that doesn't happen for us. So it's much easier for us to live daily life, but it's also much more difficult for us to see if we're compromising with the empire. It's far more subtle. Our idolatry is far more subtle. It's easier to live under the temptation to compromise, not by buckling under the weight of persecution, but we are tempted by being lulled into the greatness of the beast, forgetting that it's a beast and not a shining city on a hill. That's what John's trying to tell us. Don't be tempted to give your ultimate allegiance to anything but King Jesus. And that's the point of the passage. He tells us right in the middle. It's, it's really interesting. This passage is so debated, so scrutinized, and looked at, and, and we're going to get to the weird stuff here in a second. Well, I mean, everything's weird. 
But where people really go off the rails with 666 and Mark of the Beast and all this stuff, we're, we're getting there. Don't worry. Just a little preview. But John tells us exactly the point of the whole chapter right here in the middle. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. Boom, that's it. That's the point. This means that God's people must endure persecution patiently, right? Don't compromise with empire and remain faithful. Don't compromise with false teaching. That's the point. That's the thing that we're called to, okay? That's the point of this passage. Now, if the beast from the sea and the dragon cannot defeat the church, maybe they can deceive her with the beast from the land. And I saw another beast come up out of the, the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Right? Again, unholy trinity. What does the Spirit of God do for us? It points us to worship King Jesus. What does the beast out of the land do? It points people to worship the beast out of the sea, just like the Spirit. Right? Seeking to imitate the work of the Trinity. He did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down from heaven, from the sky, while everyone was watching. Again, right? That's a reference to a prophet, right? Elijah made fire come down from heaven. Well, Elijah was, was driven by the Spirit of God. This is a false prophet, a false teacher. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to this statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. See how in which this is setting up a false church? I mean, Stephanie read for us earlier, the church is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Right? Male nor female? It's the same thing. Rich and poor, free and slave, small and great. Right? It was every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. This is the idea of setting up a false church. Uh, sorry, I didn't read the rest of that. To, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. All right, everyone just got real nervous, right? Everyone's like, okay, what do we get? What is he, he going to say? What's the mark? What do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Well, before we get to that, I want to make a a connection to why we think this is a false prophet or representing false teaching. Later in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, 20, John's going to say this, And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast? The other beast. So it's the false prophet. The false prophet and the beast are the same, right? Throughout the book of Revelation, there's lots of figurative language and lots of overlap of figurative language. That's okay. That's how apocalyptic literature works. You're like layering metaphors over against 
themselves. So don't pull one and say, that thing is literal, this thing is not, right? Like, you got to be consistent. There's these layers that throw over the top. Uh, Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Just a clue as to what's happening to the beast later, right? They don't win. Babylon doesn't win. So, what is this mark? Well, there's a lot of things it's not, but... First of all, we need to remember that being marked on the forehead or on the hand is a link to the Old Testament in which God told his people to have the scriptures like things that you would wear on your hands and on your foreheads. And sometimes uh, the Jews took that very literally and put scriptures on their foreheads and in boxes on their hands and these things, right? Like very literally. But the point of it was to say you are to be marked by God's word. Remember, we saw this earlier. God's people have already been sealed on their forehead. So whatever we say about the sealing of God on the forehead there, and when you walked in, we didn't stamp your forehead this morning with a number, uh, right? Whatever we say about that, we should probably say about this, right? It's a figurative marking of allegiance. It's not a physical marking. It's not a microchip. It's not a COVID vaccine. It's not a global uh, 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 political movement, right? That's not, that's not what it means. It does say that those who were not marked, right, could not buy and sell. What does that mean? Well, I think it does mean that Paul has, or I mean, not Paul, John has warned already, has warned the church, if you're going to be faithful to Jesus, you're going to be marginalized and pushed out of economic gain. Right? You want to participate in the empire? You want to participate in the economy of the world? You want to be a winner in those realms, you might have to compromise things about your following of Jesus. So don't do that, which means you might not gain everything that you could gain in the world. If you live your life in such a way that if whether you follow Jesus or not follow Jesus, the results of your uh, progress in the world look the same, you've probably done something wrong. Because your following of Jesus hasn't affected anything that has made that attention point? That has made you say, that's unethical, I can't do that. That thing there is causing me to have my allegiance drawn in a different place. I have to say no to that, right? It's a different kind of suffering than what the first beast offered, which the first beast was more of a crushing persecution. This one is more of a poverty, being marginalized, or needing to remove yourself from the idolatry and selfish activities of the world. And those who do compromise in that are done so because they're deceived that their allegiance to the beast will give them a home. Now, what does 666 mean? All right. I'm going to give you my quick answer, okay? So, There's lots of different ways. Most people take this to mean uh, some sort of uh, numerology or something called gematria, which is to say that there are numbers that are identified with letters. And so you're actually naming a person uh, based upon these letters and, and, and the way they work out, right? So like the sixth letter of the alphabet and the sixth, right? So if you read anything about this, there are like literally a thousand different meanings, right? Because... Gematria doesn't really work that way. 
You actually start with the name and then add the number to it. So to start with the number and then go back to letters, you literally have an endless possibility. Which language is it? Well, uh, I, I would say that I don't agree with that position, by the way, so I'll just uh, put it out there, because I think John elsewhere identifies something that is in either Hebrew or Greek, right? In Revelation 9, we saw when he calls uh, the, the king of the angel from the bottomless pit, his name is, in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. He, he distinguishes where there's Greek and Hebrew. Here, he doesn't say anything about this number being Greek or Hebrew. So, it would make sense if he was going to do it that it would be Greek because that's what people spoke and what he's writing in. But then, could it be Hebrew because of the Jews? Like, could it be Hebrew? Well, maybe, but there's no, there's no marker here to tell you which it would be. So, is it Hebrew? Is it Greek? Or is it, as some would say, it's Latin? Now, we're going to take Latin and do that. Or even some would say, let's do it in English. And then you get a whole lot of weird things. Basically, any political leader that you hate is the mark of the beast, right? Like, that's literally how it's worked throughout history, right? It's like, oh, I hate that guy. Let me figure out how his name is really 666, right? So when he says, wisdom is needed here, and you need to figure out this mystery, I don't think he means figure out through gematria this mystery. Like, I don't think that's what he means here, because that's not what wisdom and, and how this works with, with what he said earlier means, I'll, I'll get to that in just a second, but if you are to take the gematria lang, uh, uh, route, then there is a way to make it say Nero Caesar, which is certainly an enemy of God's people, certainly prevalent in the minds of his, of his readers. So if that is a potential route, then Nero's the answer, not Adolf Hitler or Barack Obama or... Donald Trump, or any other person. Like, not it. That's not it, right? So if it's Nero, Nero would be representative of, like, the kingdoms and rulers of the world, not representative of Nero himself as this one final person, right? So because the way in which this figurative language is universalized, I don't think that's helpful. But what else could it be if it's not that? I think that there's problems with that, and so I don't think that's what it is. Well, I think he tells us what it is. He says, it is the number of man. The number of a man. Remember, we've said numbers are really important in Revelation. What is seven? The number of perfection. Jesus, right? When, when he sees the lamb, right? He's got seven eyes. Not because he has seven eyes, but because he can see perfectly, Right? There are seven lampstands. There are se like there are seven sections to this book, right? Seven is the number of perfection, and God is triune. So if the number of God would be seven, 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 right, representing the Trinity, or representing in Hebrew, when you want to make something really important and really powerful, you say it three times: holy, 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 seven, seven, seven. So the number of man would be the number of imperfection which is six. Almost seven, but not seven. Six, six, six. Unholy, unholy, unholy. Representing this satanic trinity. Six, six, six. Right? The problem with this passage in so many ways is that we press details where they shouldn't be pressed, 
And we use this phrase, wisdom is needed here, to justify figuring out all these mysteries. Who's this false prophet? How can we identify him? All those things, right? The problem with that is it plays directly into the strategy of the unholy trinity to deceive us. Because it puts our guard on, in the wrong place. It puts our guard in the wrong place to say the threat is somewhere out there and if we can identify it, then we can know what it is and attack it. No, no, no. John is saying the threat is in you. You, we know Babylon's a threat, that's for sure. We don't have to even argue about that. That's for sure it. And there's this false prophet, false teaching, all these things. But what is he urging you? Remain faithful, meaning the real threat is in here. The real threat is not figuring out 666 and the mark of the beast and all these things. It's, am I compromising with idolatry? Am I being tempted to give my allegiance to something other than King Jesus? That's the real threat. And so when John says wisdom is needed here, well, he just said anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. If you've read your Bible, that should trigger something. Right? That's what Jesus says when he gives parables. And the point of parables is not to press every little detail, but to hit you right where it hurts to say, oh my goodness, I need to repent and trust. I need to respond to something. I need to endure patiently and remain faithful. So actually the point of this book, or the point of this section, is really quite simple and almost boring. Even in the midst of all of the craziness of the dragon and the beast and the beast, it's the ordinary means of grace. Remain faithful to Jesus and endure patiently persecution this false prophet is bringing some sort of false teaching teaching so we see like the if if the first beast is representing some political power the second beast is really representing more of a spiritual or religious power now there's a spectrum of false teaching that exists right this, this here talks about this false prophet making us worship the first beast. So certainly, what would be in mind for John and his readers is the civil religion and worship of Caesar that was going on in the day, right? So any form of sort of hyper-nationalism could be really construed as civil religion. And that's what John would be warning against. Don't give your ultimate allegiance to the state. Could also be some form of idolatry, political, economic, power, sexual, all of these things are causing of worship. And all of these have false teachers seeking to deceive us that they are ultimate, that they are the greatest. Could also be a religious false teaching, false religions, any talk of God, spirituality, worship of another God, whether that's in Hinduism. Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, black Hebrew Israelites, or a Unitarian understanding of God that sort of looks like the first beast, an amalgamation of everything, right? Like just put it all together and it's like, what is that? I don't recognize that, right? That, that all of those things could be in mind when we talk about false teaching of a religious nature. Could be false teaching within the church. Now, now when we talk about other religions, I think it's really important to say that we don't view, and John is not saying that people of other religions are part of the beast here. That's not what it's saying at all. right? We, we, 
fight against not flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual forces, right? The beast is the idolatry that exists, and people are deceived by the beast, right? And so it's really important that we make that distinction, that we're not talking about people as monsters or beasts, right? Like, we're talking about these idolatries as those. Could be false teaching within the church. Anything that pushes us not to worship Jesus. So that would include oneness Pentecostalism that would deny the divinity of Jesus, extreme forms of progressive Christianity that would deny the physical resurrection of Jesus or his divinity. Anything that's questioning the divinity of Jesus is false teaching. Now, could be more subtle. Now, here's a really important distinction that when we start talking about false teaching, error and false teaching are not the same thing, right? We should be cautious not to call everything we think is an error biblically false teaching. Because false teaching is more closely aligned with does it deny the worship of King Jesus? Does it deny his divinity? Does it strike at who Jesus is and what he's done? Then let's call it false teaching. But we should enter into humility. None of us get the Bible totally right, right? There's error. All of us are going to be corrected one day. So we should have a little humility in that. And be gracious with brothers and sisters who view secondary issues differently than we do. Because here's the thing. We have enough problems. We're in Babylon. Right? Let's not kill each other. We're already in Babylon together. Like, let's not fight against each other here. We've got to stick together. So what does it mean for us to endure and remain faithful? Well, I think there's been some allusions already to the book of Daniel. Right? And what does he say that the second beast does? He sets up a statue that you have to worship. Well, certainly this probably has allusions to what Caesar was doing in Rome, right? Setting up these statues for emperor worship. But it also probably has allusions to the book of Daniel, in which Nebuchadnezzar set up a statue. And he set up this statue, and Daniel and his friends were in exile, and they were commanded to worship the statue, and they refused. And his friends were called before Nebuchadnezzar, And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. That's remaining faithful and patiently enduring suffering. They don't fight. They don't call to arms. They don't disrespect. Call them your majesty. They were good men who held to their ethical standard and were willing to face whatever suffering came, knowing God is able to save us, and even if he doesn't, we're definitely not compromising. That's what it means to remain faithful. So what does that mean for us in our day? Because our situation probably doesn't look the same. I don't think Muncie's mayor is going to set up a statue and say, (laughs) worship that or uh, die. I don't think that that's going to happen, guys. So what does it mean for us in the midst of this? Well, I think we can learn from Daniel. And I think we can also learn from other exiles in Babylon. What does Jeremiah say to the exiles in Babylon? He says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. 
Plant gardens and eat the fruit they, the food they produce. Marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. So I think there's a tension here, right, between what Jeremiah says and what Daniel says. This tension is the tension of the church. You are to live in and love the people of Babylon. And seek to do good there. But don't make it your ultimate home. Don't make it your ultimate allegiance. The tension point there, right? If I'm going to love my neighbor as Jesus called me to, as Stephanie so uh, wonderfully showed us today. If I'm going to love my neighbor, I'm going to have to love the city in which they live. I'm going to have to serve. I'm going to have to show up. I'm going to have to speak up. I'm going to have to get involved in everything, whether that's in my private life, in my professional life, in my religious life, everything together. If I'm going to really love my neighbor who's stuck here in Babylon with me, I'm going to have to show up in love. But if I show up in that way, my heart is going to be tempted to say, Babylon's home. Look at how great it is. Who could defeat it? Look at how wonderful it is. Look at all the wonderful things we have. And we live in this tension between Jeremiah and Daniel. Where we love Babylon, we love the people here, and we want to see their good. We want to share the gospel with them. We want to love them, and we want to make sure our heart doesn't make our home here. And where it's exposed is when we face persecution and suffering. In which we have to choose. Where is your ultimate allegiance? Anytime we're having to choose between our ultimate allegiance to Jesus and anything else, we have to choose Jesus. And it's going to feel more subtle here. It's going to feel like we're being asked to compromise my following of Jesus, my following of the Lamb who was slain for personal, social, economic, or political gain. And in that moment, we have to choose Jesus. And why? Because Babylon's not your home. It's not your home. You know what Jeremiah goes on to say? This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. See, the Lord likes sevens. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. Friends, you're in Babylon. You're going to be here a while. But God has said, I'm going to bring you home. You have this longing, right? We talked about it earlier. This longing, this homesickness. I need a place in which I can be home, which I can be me, fully me and fully loved, where I can be welcome, where I can be home. And Jesus says, I'm bringing it. I'm bringing it. you got to wait for it. you got to wait for it. We're going to talk about this very soon. We're going to get through all this weird stuff and get to the end and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, right? The opposite of Babylon. And he's coming. He's bringing it. And we have to wait for it. But friends, it's certain. It's already certain. The beast has been killed. You will be brought home. And when we gather here every week, what we're trying to do in this worship service 
is not just do this thing where we get some information and we go out and we do whatever, right? Like, no, this is meant to be an oasis in the midst of Babylon to say, this is my home. And it's meant to draw those who are deceived by Babylon to come and say, no, 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 that place, does it ever really provide you home? Does it ever really satisfy that longing that you have? No, come here and meet our Jesus. Come here and experience the love that he has given us, the way in which he has suffered for us, and the way in which we suffer for you. The way in which he has accomplished all of these things. And the way in which before the foundations of the earth, before the world was made, he was slain to put your name in his book of life. To put your name down on the invitation list for the home that he is bringing. And if it was done before the foundations of the world, before the world was made, you can't mess it up, friends. If you're looking to Jesus by faith and faith alone, he's got you. He's going to take you home. This is the good news of the gospel. And let us, let it help us endure patiently and remain faithful even when the empire strikes back. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you for your grace. We desperately need you because you are faithful. Lord, would you help us to be faithful? Would you, Jesus, Stir in us this longing for your home and let us rest in who you are and what you're doing right now so that we can endure and make it to home. Jesus, would you do this for your glory and honor, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I invite you guys to stand as we respond and sing together.